Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. We're in Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." The evangelical church in America, in general, has lost its perspective on Christian living. You've somehow got the idea in many places that uh, Christ is there to, for us, that he, it's all about what he can do for us. It's all about him making our life much better. But really, that's upside-down theology. The Christian life is about how much we should love Jesus. Oh, certainly, when you get saved, Christ does so much for us. I mean, just our salvation is an incredible blessing. But this upside-down view that it's all about me and it's all about how God can bless me rather than what sacrifices and service can I render to my Savior. Does Jesus have first place in my life? That's the question I want you to ponder as we look through these verses this morning. Does Jesus Christ have first place in my life? Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Is my love for Jesus Christ preeminent over all the loves in my life? I want to remind you that this is a letter to the first letter to seven churches. These are seven churches in the province of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. When we talk about Asia, we're not talking about Asia as we know it today. This is a map of the area of what today is Turkey, and this is where these seven churches were located. Ephesus was the chief city in that area, so it makes sense that the Lord would begin with the city of Ephesus. These are local churches, just like our church. Different culture, different language, different time. We don't know how large or small the church was. Most of these churches started in homes or in other places. But these are Christians. 
If you're a Christian here this morning, meaning you're a born-again believer in Christ, um, you can relate to these people. And one day we will see them in heaven. And so these are letters to local congregations. But we also believe they are representative of all congregations. Each letter was to be read to all seven churches of Asia. So that kind of lets us know that there's a message in here, not just for the church of Ephesus, but for the other six churches. And that's represented the fact that this, what's contained in this letter is important for Christians in every age. And though we may not see something necessarily so specific to us, yet in general, we can see as we go through these seven letters that this is Jesus speaking to us today. They are extremely contemporary. This sort of answers the question, if the risen Jesus came in here this morning and stood behind this podium, what would he say to us? Well, this is the last revelation, verbal communication of the risen Jesus. Certainly, he communicates through his word from all time. But this must be a pretty important message, pretty important letters, if the risen Jesus gives these to these seven churches. Then, of course, the whole book of Revelation, though we're concerning ourselves with these seven letters because they're so important. Ephesus was the foremost city in this Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was often called the metropolis of Asia. It was a seaport city, even though that seaport has been filled in with silt from the river, but at that time, it was a seaport city, which meant that this is where the commerce came, and the commerce from all over the known world would flow through Ephesus. So it was filled, it was a very cosmopolitan place filled with people from all different cultures and different languages would mix together. It was a center for learning. Ephesus had an incredible library, one of the best ones in the first century. Now, this is a picture of modern Ephesus today. That's the remains of that library. If you uh, look up the uh, city of Ephesus, the ancient city, it's, uh, many places are fairly preserved, more so than other places in the uh, New Testament era. And so Ephesus was indeed an important city, but it was also a pagan city. The city contained many pagan temples, many pagan gods were worshipped in Ephesus. But the most important was the god Artemis, Artemis the god of fertility. The temple of Artemis, which is that merely a representation, they say was, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They said the beauty of the temple of Artemis was absolutely outstanding. Unfortunately, it contained many male and female uh, prophets and priestesses. They were nothing more than, than prostitutes. All kinds of sexual deviation took place within the temple of Artemis. If you were a criminal, you could make your way to the temple and the authorities could not come in there and get you. You can imagine the kind of people that gathered in the temple of Artemis. It was also the major banking center of that city in that area. So it was a center of commerce, a center of religion. It was a very, I would think if you went there in the first century, a very uh, confusing place. Um, there would be festivals going on. There would be religious orgies going on. It would have been a very ungodly immoral place. 
The gods and goddesses dominated the culture of Ephesus. So if you want to participate in the culture and be fully accepted, you had to participate in the cult of goddess worship and the worship of the Roman gods. Another challenge for the Christians in Ephesus was the cult of emperor worship. Domitian was the emperor. We talked about that last week. And his worship was centered in Ephesus. Ephesus was a free city, meaning they could govern themselves. There were no Roman soldiers that were assigned to Ephesus. And so Ephesus, a great honor for any city, was to have a temple to the emperor. And so Ephesus had a grand temple to the emperor Domitian. Now the center of these ancient cities was usually what was called the Agora or the marketplace. And that was true of the city of Ephesus. If you came into the entrance of the Agora, there would have been a large bowl there with incense and a fire nearby. And you were required to take a little bit of incense and offer it in worship to the god Domitian, the emperor. And if you didn't do that, you could not participate into the commerce of the Agora. And so this was a challenge for many, many Christians in Ephesus. And they couldn't get into the mainstream of commerce. And many people would not buy their wares because you don't want to buy from a Christian. These pagan Christians is the way the culture would have looked at them. And so the Christians faced many challenges. Another challenge they faced in Ephesus was the issue of um, demon worship and demonic influences. It was to Ephesus that Paul in his letter writes about the armor of the Lord. It was to Ephesus that Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, In the heavenly places. And so there was a lot of demonic activity. If you read Acts chapter 19, there's some exciting stuff in there. There's these uh, false apostles that get beat up by a group of demons. Uh, There's all kinds of things in Acts 19, which shows us and gives us a glimpse into the paganism of the city of Ephesus. These uh, Roman goddesses and gods many times would have be presented depending whether it was Roman or whether it was Greek. And uh, they would sometimes be presented as male, sometimes as female. Because in pagan demonic worship, the mixing of genders was very common. Sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Now... We know where the church of Ephesus began. It began in Acts 19 with the Apostle Paul. Though Aquila and Priscilla preceded Paul and probably laid some of the groundwork. It became a very influential church. It became the foremost church in that area of Asia Minor in the first century. In Acts 19, Luke records, This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So that means that through Paul's ministry, as the church at Ephesus got started, it not only influenced the city of Ephesus, but very likely many of these seven churches, if not all of them, were founded from Ephesus. And there were other churches in that area that are not part of the seven. And so now, 
we find the church getting a letter from the Apostle John. Now, we recognize, as we said last week, John's the human author. Jesus is the author. And so this is Jesus verbally sending a message to the church of Ephesus. Now, imagine the excitement of these Christians living in Ephesus from their dear Apostle John. Apostle John is now very, very elderly. Some believe 90, 95 years of age. He's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his preaching the gospel. And so this letter comes to them from John. And you can only imagine this congregation that is facing all of these challenges and the pastor's going to get up and read this letter from the Apostle John. It's one of those times where people would be leaning forward to hear every word. I remember when I went to college, I... Sally and I just started dating, and I went to Grace College in, in Winona Lake, Indiana. And in the student area, there was a wall, and on the wall, there were mailboxes. And uh, these mailboxes had little windows, and you had a, you know, a code or whatever uh, a key to get in there. And so every day, I would go down and look in my mailbox, because uh, Sally and I wrote to each other <clears throat> every day while we were apart. And sometimes, most times, there would be a letter in there from her. And I knew it was from her because it was in a colored envelope. And uh, she'd always spray a little perfume on it, which I really liked. And so I would get excited when there was a letter there. And I would take the letter and go someplace private and, and read her letter. Some days I didn't get a letter, but then the next day I'd usually get two letters. And I really look forward to going to the mailbox and getting that letter. That's just a small comparison to what these Christians must have felt. The electricity that went through the congregation. When the pastor stood up and said, I have a letter from the apostle John. And part of this letter, the whole book of Revelation, is specifically written to us here in Ephesus. From the beginning, this church was a light in a very pagan community. And so these seven letters, again, were to be read to all seven churches, which is a clue that it wasn't just for that church or that century. It was for every church in every age. Now, these letters, as we go through them, you will see they follow a basic pattern. And they all include an aspect of the vision of Jesus from chapter 1 that we looked at last week. So we find here in verse 1, the, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The word angel means messenger. Now there's some debate as to exactly who's this referring to. There are a few who think there's a specific angel assigned to each church. It could be true, but that's probably doubtful. It's probably the, the messenger could be the one who went to Patmos and brought the letter to Ephesus. Uh, many believe, I think it's probably the pastor, uh, the leader of the church at Ephesus. But that's really not germane to the situation. If you're wondering what the Germans have to do with it, see me later after the service. So um, it went right over your head, didn't it? So um, John uses the word for messenger, speaking of John the Baptist. In Matthew 11:10, behold, I send my messenger before your face. So very likely, whether it's an individual or the pastor, it's probably a human person. 
The number seven means fullness, completeness, or perfection. This is seen throughout the book. And what we know is that Jesus knows the true condition of each church. Verse two, I know your works. Every letter contains this phrase, I know your works. I often think, what does Jesus think of our church? As he moves among us through the Holy Spirit, what does he think of our church? And let's remember something. The church is not this building. And so when you think of Grace Bible Church, it's us. It's the people. Whether you're an official member or not, maybe you come here and would say, this is your church. You come here fairly regularly. This is us. We're the church. So he's examining my life. He's examining your life when he says, I know your works. So that means that Jesus examines each and every one of us. And his evaluation is the only one that matters. You know, a long time ago, I, I gave up on worrying about what people thought of me. Um, care a little more what people think of our church, but that really doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what is Jesus' evaluation of my Christian life, of your Christian life, and of his church. I hope as we go through here, these letters will help us to think a little differently of the church. Do you realize the local church is the most unique entity on planet Earth? The most unique entity. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's congregation. This is his church his primary witness in the world. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. How committed are we to his church? Well, here Jesus commends the Ephesian Christians, and there's a lot to commend in this church. This is a good church. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience. That actually should be translated, I know your works and your labor and your patience. And the end here is not used to describe what comes next. It is used to explain what came before. The word labor means to toil to exhaustion. These people worked hard. And, and it, would, it would take a lot of toil uh, to serve the Lord in a community like Ephesus. The word here for patience is that great word, hupomene. Hupomene is a compound word. It means to remain under. It's the idea of endurance. It's not just passive waiting or passive endurance. It's triumphant fortitude. When Beethoven lost his hearing, he exclaimed, I will take life by the throat. And that would be a phrase that the Ephesian Christians could relate to. The church also defended right doctrine. Jesus commends the church and says, verse 2, and you can't, cannot bear those who are evil, those who are evil. Well, you talk about an evil culture. That was an evil culture. We live in an evil culture. I'm talking about pure evil. I mean, you know, people that profit from, evolu from evolution, from abortion, that's pure evil. Have you noticed in the advertisements for movies and TV shows, how much of the occult, darkness, evil is presented as entertainment. A culture is being overcome with evil. Are we like Lot living in Sodom? 
when it says that righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, 2 Peter 2. Is that true of us? Or is the wickedness of the culture sort of something we become immune to? We've seen so much of it, we're just sort of immune to it. Or are we still sensitive to the ungodliness around us? The Ephesians certainly were. And these Christians in Ephesus had discernment. Discernment, verse 2. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So these people stood up for truth. There were always these false apostles and false teachers, false prophets running around in the first century just as they are today. And um, we see them usually through mass media, through the internet, through TV, radio. But these Ephesians, they were grown spiritually. And they were able to detect this and stand up against it. Remember when the Apostle Paul left the church at Ephesus, he called the Ephesian elders to him. And he said these words, I know that this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. These people took that warning to heart. And some 40 years later, they were still listening to the Apostle Paul. And they were comparing what they were hearing from these apostles to Scripture. Because, you see, they knew what a true apostle was. They were founded by the apostle Paul. They were under the ministry of the apostle John. They also had the ministry of that great teacher, Apollos, of Timothy, of Aquila and Priscilla, and of Tysicus. This was a church that was grounded in the word of God. And they did not deviate from scripture. It's no wonder that these believers could discern between false teachers and true teachers. And I'm very thankful for Grace Bible Church. And I tell you again and again, we're almost 100 years old, and this church has stood by the Word of God. You can trace back through the history of our church, and you will see pastor after pastor who stood on the Word of God, who preached the deity of Christ, who believed the Bible was the inspired, infallible Word of the living God, and who taught it and who preached it, and we've never deviated from false doctrine. And we cannot take that for granted or think that will always be the case. We must be guardians of the gospel. Verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know exactly for sure who these people were, but some best guesses there likely was a set, they were a sect in the early church. They were influenced by the Gnosticism of that time in Greek philosophy. And the Gnostics believed that uh, the body was really inconsequential. The only thing that mattered was the soul. So if you wanted to take your body and go to the temple of Aphrodite and participate in the immoral pagan festivals, that was okay, you could do that. Because the body really doesn't matter. These people took Christian liberty and turned it into license and into lasciviousness. And so basically Jesus says, I hate the Nicolaitans. 
and I hate what they are doing. And then here's another thing. The church of Ephesus faithfully endured. Verse 3, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. That word persevere is again that word hopomene. You have persevered, you have endured. The word patience here means to bear up, to bear up under the pressures of living in a pagan culture, under the, the pressures of ungodliness and demonic activity and false prophets and false apostles. They'd stayed true to Jesus and see that they did it for his name's sake. They weren't trying to build up their own reputation. Everything they did was for the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a great church. If you were looking for a good church to belong to in the first century, this would be a church you could recommend to someone, a great local church. Over 40 years old at this time, they tirelessly ministered in the name of Jesus. In the midst of trials, in the midst of persecutions, they took a stand for Christ. They never wavered. They never vacillated in their testimony. They stayed true to their convictions. And then we find a rebuke from Jesus. It's almost surprising when you, because this is the first letter and you're not, you don't know that this is kind of the pattern. And it's kind of surprising after what he commends them for. And then he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Love for Jesus energizes love for one another in the church. And so whenever you see a church that doesn't really love one another... They're always fussing and fighting and fuming. You can be sure that's a church that has lost their first love for Jesus. This is first priority. This is to love Jesus more than anyone and anything else. This is actually emphatic. Your first love you have left. Now let's take a step back here and wait a minute. They've got the right doctrine. They're working hard. They're defending the faith. So what exactly is Jesus rebuking them about? Well, a church can have good doctrine and be as cold as a mausoleum. And you can go in a church like that and they might preach the gospel. But they're not friendly. They're not loving. They're looking critically at you and at one another. William Barclay says, strict orthodoxy can cost too much if it has to be bought at the price of love. This is agape love. This is spiritual love. This is love energized by the Holy Spirit. This is the love when the Bible says God is love. That's what it's talking about. This is the love that Jesus spoke to Peter about. Remember when he reinstated Peter in John 21 and three times he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do I have first place in your life, Peter? Am I number one in your life, Peter? Is your love for me the first priority in your life? So what exactly is this first love? Some would say, well, 
It could be the enthusiasm of coming to Jesus. I mean, if you're ever around new believers, their love is infectious because it's all new to them. And they're so thankful that Christ has washed away their sins. And for many of them, they just can't hardly believe that grace, this free grace, and that God loves them so much that they, he sent Jesus to die for them. And they don't have to work for, to maintain their salvation or to gain their salvation. It's a gift of God, and they are just overcome with love and, ad, and, and appreciation and thankfulness for their Savior. This is what Jehovah was speaking to Jerusalem about in Jeremiah 2.2, the love of your betrothal. I compare it to marriage. You know, when you start dating, and the first time you hold hands, it's like, you know, a shiver goes up your spine, you know. Don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. Well, you guys don't, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, and then you go on, you date, you get engaged, then you get married. And, you know, those first years of marriage, everything's new and exciting. And then as time goes on, the kids come, the diapers come, the dishes come. It doesn't mean that you love each other less. And as time goes by, your love matures and your love deepens. But... It's that idea of first love. You're not, um, you're not swinging on the chandeliers anymore. We used to do that when we first got married. It's fun. You should, <laughs> Sally loved that. You should try that. You know, 40 years earlier, Paul had said to them that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul used the word love 14 times in his letter to Ephesians. This church gets two letters. They get Paul's letter of the Ephesians. Now they get John's letter of Revelation. They were a blessed congregation. And so how does Jesus say you should correct this? He tells them, you correct this by remembering, by repenting, and by returning. Remember your initial passion for Christ. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. Was there a time in my life when I was closer to Jesus than I am right now today? That's the question we all need to be asking ourselves. Was there a time in my life where I was closer to Jesus than I am right now? You see, Jesus never moves. <laughs> so if we sense any distance between us, it's always us who has moved. See, love for Jesus is essential. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, without love, I am nothing. Loveless ministry amounts to nothing. It is interesting that Paul, when he closed the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Some of you here today may not be a Christian, you have a general, I kind of love God, but do you really love Jesus? If you really love Jesus, you would give your life to him. The Bible says, whoever doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So number one, remember your initial passion for Christ. Number two, repent of any cold mechanical service to Christ. Jesus longs to have a relationship. He doesn't just want dutiful labor. 
Oh, yeah, the Bible says be weary in well-doing in due season you will reap if you don't faint. He doesn't want us to be lazy believers. He wants us to be, you know, working disciples. And that's who these people were in Ephesus. But he doesn't just want dutiful labor. He wants a relationship. We pastors have the inherent danger of spending so much time preparing messages that we don't take time for, you know, communing with the Lord. It's true if you're a teacher or any aspect of the Christian life. You can be so busy making a living for your family, which is a very good thing and a necessary thing, but we don't prioritize our time with the Lord because spiritual apathy is a very slow progress and process. We need to be taking spiritual inventory. Are there some idols in my life that I need to tear down? Are there some things in my life that are taking precedence over the Lord Jesus? And I need to identify those and I need to eliminate those. Psalm 26 says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. So I remember my initial passion. I repent of any cold mechanical service to Christ. And I return to those areas of neglected spiritual practices. Verse 5, do the first works. Do the first works. What's that mean? I think most likely what that means is go back to the spiritual deeds and disciplines that you used to be so faithful in. Get back to faithful church attendance if that's an issue. Get back to Bible reading. Get back to prayer. Get back to fellowship. If I'm not serving, get back to service. Engage with worship. Complacency is deadly for all spiritual growth. You know, a loveless course can only continue so long. Verse 5. Or else I will come to you quickly, meaning suddenly, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation. He's saying you're going to lose your church. You're going to lose your church. I will eliminate your lampstand if you don't return and repent and remember. The seven letters to the seven churches are to be applied to each of us personally. Say, how do you know that? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have ears? Looks to me like all of you. So nobody gets out from under this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, this means you. This means you and you and you and you and you and me. Forgot you guys. You. <laughs> this means you. When we hear God's word, it's our duty to apply it not pass it on to somebody else. Thinking about, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message. One time as a young pastor, there was an individual in our church who was problematic, and I prepared a message just for this person. I, I hate to admit that. I'll confess that. So the time came and I was all geared up and I had this message prepared. 
Guess who wasn't in church that day? You know what the Lord taught me? That person didn't need that message. I needed that message. I needed to hear. Actually, I need to hear every message. And so if you come into church thinking about, boy, I know someone. And and I understand if you have a a relative or a friend who's not saved and you want them to sit under the gospel. I, I understand that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about passing off spiritual truth or conviction to somebody else. Henry Ward Beecher wrote, The churches of the land are sprinkled all over with bald-headed old sinners whose hair has been worn off by the constant friction of countless sermons that have been aimed at them and glanced off and hit the man in the pew behind. (laughs) Now, don't accost me if you're bald-headed like some people did after the early service, okay? But then notice the promise given by the Lord Jesus as he wraps this up. Verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So who, who are the overcomers? Well, the overcomers are the people who are born again. If you're saved here today, you're the overcomer. So how do you know that? 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You've trusted Christ as your Savior. You're included in these promises to he who overcomes. He who overcomes. You know, Artemis was the god of fertility and the god of life. And this was symbolized because outside the temple of Artemis in the main courtyard was this huge tree, and they called it the tree of life. And it, thought, it was thought to have magical properties that was communicated through the goddess. And so ladies that wanted to have children would come there and they would worship at the tree. People would come there hoping to be healed. And it was representative of life and healing and blessing. Well, that tree of life has long, long since gone by the wayside. And so in Genesis, the real tree of life, we know sinful men were banished from that tree because of Adam and Eve's sin. But we also know the tree of life is going to be restored in heaven, in the new Jerusalem. And it will be wide open to all of Jesus' disciples to come to. In Revelation 22, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life may enter through the gates into the city, the cities of the New Jerusalem, and the paradise of God. You know, emperors used to have these palatial gardens, and the people that could come in there with the emperor had to have an invitation. Not anybody could just walk in there. But you and I are going to be welcomed into the, the palatial gardens in the New Jerusalem and the paradise of God because we are one of his children one of his disciples. The church of Ephesus eventually passed into history. If you go to Ephesus today, you will not find a Christian congregation there. The area has been overtaken by Muslims. There were more Christians in that area of Turkey in the first century than there are today. So we understand that Jesus remove their lampstand. What about our church? 
will our lampstand continue to shine as a light to the world, generation after generation? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not only this church, but the other six letters we need to take special heed to. As Jesus moves in our midst, is he pleased with what he sees? Is he pleased with my life, with your life? Does our lamp stand, stand tall and shine brightly to the lost community around us?